If you would, please join me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll read the first five verses together here in just a minute. As people start a new year, they have a privilege and an opportunity to make a number of decisions. But while some of our decisions are light, we might lose a little bit of weight, we might cut back on sugar or something like that, there are those, particularly men and women, who are facing national championships, SEAL teams that are about to ship out and go overseas, that are making entirely different kinds of resolutions. What stands in front of them is a potential horror, potential loss, potential uh, wreck and ruin of the entire um, course of their lives and possibly of the nation. Well, certain New Testament passages that we face are a little bit jarring in what they have to say to us because they're facing people who need to, as it were, gird up their loins and be ready to defend the church. God has set you in this place, and He intends for you to be trained to be protectors, to be guardians, to be shepherds, to be stewards of his flock. And that is something not to be undertaken lightly. Let's read these first five verses together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This summer I discovered a series from the BBC entitled Life on a Victorian Farm. My kids were not so interested in it. But I thought it was really fascinating. So I I kind of binge-watched it while I had COVID a a second time this summer. It was a great time to be laid up and just doing this. But I was especially fascinated with one of the episodes because these people who live in the modern era go back and pretend like they're living in a previous era. They're only going to eat foods that people ate in the Victorian era. They will only use implements and tools that people used in the Victorian era. And they'll carry on practices, and they'll try to survive for a year in the Victorian era. Well, one of my favorite episodes dealt with sheep. Here are people that had very little practice or very little experience dealing with sheep, and they have period-specific sheep breeds that they're trying to herd. And they're trying to take them out of the the village and the, the particular small farm where they were and drive them up to the moors where they're then going to let the sheep somewhat roam over the late spring and summer period, and then bring them back to, to uh, fleece them in uh, the winter or the, the late fall. But in the process of trying to drive the sheep, the sheep hit an area where some of the hedgerows, the famous hedgerows of England and Wales, and so were actually broken down. And they saw a gap, and they shot right through it. And the rest of the episode is about how in the world do you get sheep back when they're fleeing in every direction and you don't have a sheep dog. Well, the reality is the scriptures testify that precisely that kind of circumstance happens in the flock of God. If you are going to shepherd people, either very specifically as a pastor shepherd, or even in some other way that God has appointed, like counseling and guiding people and directing them, 
you will have sheep dart out of the path, cut through a hedgerow, and disappear. And it is a responsibility of men and women of God, especially men in the pastorate, but some of you women as counselors and leaders of the women in the church as well, to direct and hedge in um, the sheep of God so that they are protected. In fact, the passage in front of us today gives this testimony. Because spiritual defection ravages the flock, we guard the flock of God by guarding the faith. See, one of the things that those people could have done is made sure that the hedgerows were intact all along the path that they were trying to direct the sheep, then the sheep would not have gotten out. But it was the inattention to the hedgerows that actually led to damage to the flock. So, yes, we want to care for people. Of course we want to lean into them and meet them where they are and meet their needs and address their concerns. But in the process of being compassionate, We do not lay aside the responsibility, again, as men and women of God, to protect the flock of God by protecting sound doctrine. So let us guard the faith together. What does the passage begin by showing us? Spiritual defection is definite. Spiritual defection is definite. All we have to hit is the first verse for this one. And while we don't like to go into Greek, and I certainly wouldn't do this if I were out at a church where people weren't exposed to Greek that that much, we can do so here. The passage uses the word expressly. Now, the Spirit expressly says that this is going to happen. Big deal. This word occurs only once in the New Testament. So we don't get a lot of fodder from the rest of the New Testament to understand exactly what's going on and the significance of what God is saying to us in this passage. So instead, let's look at the extra-biblical context, the Greek language, and so we see what we can discern from it. The Greek historian Polybius wrote, It is clear from this treaty that the Carthaginians speak of Sardinia, which is an island, and Libya, the north coast of Africa, as belonging to them entirely. But on the other hand, they here's our word, make a distinction in the case of Sicily and only stipulate for that part of it which is subject to Carthage. Or to represent this visually, in a treaty that Polybius had access to, the Carthaginians said certain territories are ours absolutely, unquestionably. But in the case of Sicily, they made a distinction. They very specifically, you might say they explicitly indicated the dividing lines. These cities are not ours. The Romans rule over those. These cities are ours. So what's the, the upshot of this? Look at the, look at the text. The Spirit speaks expressly. Why in the world at this point in the Scriptures would Paul lean into us and say, Hey guys, the Spirit is like super detailed on this one point. The Spirit does not want you to miss this particular point. The Spirit is as clear and direct as He can possibly be on this issue. Josephus backs this up. Our legislator, he would say in the Antiquities of the Jews, uh, there he's talking about Moses, right? The legislator for the Jews. So our legislator speaks some things wisely, but enigmatically, and other things under a decent allegory. 
but he still explains such things as required a direct explication plainly and expressly. Note the contrast. There's the enigmatic and there's the kratos. There is the unclear and the mysterious and there is as precise and direct and clear as can possibly be stated. And God's Holy Spirit does that right here in this text. The Holy Spirit comes to us and addresses us and says, you must not miss this point. Well, what point is that? In later times, some will depart from the faith. Well, that's pretty discouraging. The Spirit, when when He actually takes time to be precise and direct with us, He tells us that people are going to depart from the faith. Yes, He does. The second key phrase that we have to look at is this expression, in later times. There are some commentators who think that that means the last days, like 2 Timothy 3, 1. But I think there is a more contextually appropriate meaning. Paul does not say, in the last days, in the end of time. He uses a new expression, and it simply means later, afterward, later on. So in the life of everyone, well, later on. We're going to do this. Later on this semester, you'll have certain projects due. Some of you, later on, I'm going to get married. Some of you, later on, we plan to have children. And here, the Spirit expressly and clearly says, later on, some are going to depart from the faith. Later on in what? In the life of every church. In the experience of any aggregated group of people, later on, some of those will leave. Later on, some of those will say, I've had enough of it. Later on, some of them will be discouraged. They will become tired. They will depart from the faith. Which means that if we're not attentive to the flock and have our finger on the pulse of people who are in the process of looking for the hedgerows to jump, or they're starting the process of wandering. We're ignoring this express instruction of the Holy Spirit that He wanted us to be almost more alert to and aware of than anything else in this book. This coincides well with 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out, that it may become plain that they are not of us there will be defections from the faith. But the passage continues to express the fact that spiritual defection is actually devilish in its origin. And we don't want to become mystical, and we can only deal with what the Scriptures actually tell us about devils. There's no point in speculating. We don't see them, though they are active in this world, and we know they are active in this world because God says so. But look what the text says. They are going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He doesn't say merely that humanity is led astray by our own imagination, although that is true. Or that humanity is led away by our own lusts and desires. That also is true. But as far as this passage is concerned, Satan is ravaging the flock by actively breaking down the hedgerows drawing the sheep into a completely different path, a completely different pasture that is foreign to the one that the Scriptures lay out for us, and he's destroying them. That is, Satan and his angels are very much at work. 
the rest of the scriptures back this. 1 Corinthians 10.20, what pagans sacrifice, they actually offer to demons. It's not that uh, you're dreaming it up, you're exaggerating. The demons are, yes, they exist, but they're not really that active. No, when the pagans go to worship their idols, they're actually actively worshiping demons. Demons who are energizing the activities of this world, our our political spheres in this world, the economic spheres of the world, the social spheres of the world, the ethical spheres of the world. Or Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They are here. And even at the end of time, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping. Oh, they were just worshiping money. No, they were worshiping Demons, they thought they were pursuing wealth. What they were really pursuing were satanic forces. What they were really valuing was a completely alternative worldview that was engendered, inspired, initiated by dark forces who are antithetic to God, who hate Him, and who want to destroy Him. So again, this doesn't mean that we go on some spiritual witch hunt, but especially as spiritual leaders, we need to be aware that the stuff that goes on out there in the world around us is not just bad ideas. Just yesterday, my wife came home from, uh, she teaches middle school English here, and they had covered a particular story that has old references to words that now have different meanings. You know what I'm talking about? And the, and the meanings now have been corrupted and perverted. And she had an entire class of eighth graders, and they're smirking at each other, and they're laughing behind their hands, and then they're getting together in groups right after class is over, and they're talking about... And they thought it was funny. And our world will use words like gay and corrupt rainbows. That's not just some small deviation. That is Satan actively at work. And he is hunting for your soul, but in the context of the preaching of this semester, he's hunting for your sheep. He's trying to savage and ravage the flock by leading them astray through doctrines that he's representing as enlightened, that he's representing as noble, that he's representing as tolerant. And in reality, there's nothing noble, enlightened, or tolerant about it. It is debased and it is devilish. The Spirit speaks expressly. This is not going to be some pastor, some teacher way down the line who's a little carried away. The Spirit being as clear as he possibly can be that the origin and source of this activity is devilish. The defective is, uh, defection itself is insincerely deceptive. The phrase that comes next seems to indicate that the decision to pay attention to doctrines of demons does not actually spring from sincerity. Okay, People are choosing to follow the doctrines of demons not with some kind of wow, absolutely, it it was right. And as I study scripture, it was just, it looked like it was good. 
Rather, there is some kind of corruption and twisting taking place there that is not just that they're being deceived, but they're being insincerely deceived. You're like, how in the world do those go together? Well, there is a satanic lie being offered to them, but there is something in the human heart that is responding to that lie and is eager to go along with it. So it is not just Satan over here and, well, the devil made me do it. No, Satan gave the lie and they followed it because they wanted to and they're insincere in that process. They shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies, but in hypocrisy. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Defection is morally destructive. The conscience is seared. The text says they are having the conscience seared. Uh, Searing is not just a minor activity. It's not a light activity and trite thing. A few weeks ago, we needed to burn a number of dead trees that had fallen and that we actively felled on our property. We have to do this a number of times a year. But when we build a fire, people are like, oh yeah, you burned a little bit of yard rubbish. Now we usually burn a pile that is, the burn pile itself is eight feet by eight feet and six feet high. That's the actively burning part. And then you take armloads of brush and entire stumps, and you dump it on there for an entire day at a time. Hour after hour after hour, three, four, up to ten cords of wood dumped on in a day. It's pretty intense. Well, if you deal with fire for very long, uh, you're bound to experience some of its effects negatively. You know, the time when you grab a big armful of brush, and, and you walk up to it, and you're about to swing around to get it up on top of the thing, and the wind shifts, which happened to me. And you, you throw the brush up on top, which is going to eject not only sparks, but also little bits, cinders, and things like that. And one of those ejected onto me. And it instantly burned through my shirt on the back of my neck, and then burned through my skin. And I'm you know, swatting at it and batting at it. But the thing was, was bleeding. It actually burned through the entire... This is too descriptive. Is that right? Okay. You've got to be careful when you're preaching. You're not too. I felt that injury for a month. Searing for a month. There's nothing, there's no salve you can put. I suppose I could go to the doctor and get injected with something that like deadens the pain. Absolutely. But when something is seared, it is damaged to a very deep level that is horribly destructive. And when these people are departing from the faith, the issue is that the conscience itself is becoming so warped that it is now malevolent and twisted, scarred, we would say, unable to function. So that even when you represent God's word again with complete reasonability and you offer to them a way of life again, the scarring and the damage that has taken place is horribly destructive, which means we have to guard the flock. Build up the hedgerows. Keep doctrine intact and keep it before people so that they come to a precise and accurate faith. And Satan is not allowed to corrupt them and draw them away. Martin Luther said of this text, they have an invented and false conscience. You know our world has a conscience? 
There are people who will talk about and they'll pound, it is right for us to do this or it is wrong for us to do the other thing. And they're completely backwards. The world replaces biblical love with tolerance. Freedom from sin with freedom to sin. Maybe some of you saw that Gavin Newsom uh, gave a speech the other day. What did he proclaim California? We are the freest state. Of course, he was promptly mocked on Twitter and all sorts of social media. It's like, no, you're the least free state. But what is California free to do? Sin. If you're a criminal, California is the place for you. If you want to steal stuff, California is the place. If you want drugs and homelessness and meal, California is the place. And I'm not trying to preach against the state. I'm trying to show you that Satan has done a bait and switch. He says he's going to give freedom, but reality, he takes away freedom and enslaves people to sin. People do have equality with God, but that doesn't mean equity in life. And you cannot replace morality with humanism and have morality at all. So all of the redefining of good and evil destroys the conscience so that it cannot function properly any longer. A couple of examples. NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League, proudly publishes the following agenda. And again, I remember this is under the category of a demonic delusion and destruction. Here are their planks of their platform that, again, are available online. Policies that limit access to abortion and force medically unnecessary procedures are oppressive to women. Except for the 50% of the women who are slaughtered. 500,000 plus a year women slaughtered in the womb. What are these medically unnecessary procedures that they're talking about? Birth, sometimes C-sections, ultrasounds, horror of horrors. We don't want them to see the child. Second, a woman's autonomy over her own body is not a secondary issue or social issue, but a human right? There is only one author of human rights that has ever existed or ever will exist. And his name is God. No one gives human rights to humans other than God. Your constitution doesn't give you human rights regardless of what country you're from. God gave you human rights. And this is the very antithesis to that They've upended good and evil. And yet they don't do it in words that are malignant, do they? Well, look at that. We don't want to be oppressive to women and therefore we have to go along with And Satan has twisted and warped it, and he's trying to mislead your flock and corrupt their thinking so that by words that sound good like this, they actually come to believe a lie. Defection is finally falsely delimiting. Falsely delimiting. Notice the phrases in here like forbidding to marry. While Paul gives two examples of false delimitations on divinely ordained activities, it seems likely there are probably lots of others. Just this morning, I read in Colossians chapter 2. And here you have people that think, okay, okay, I know the gospel's important. That's really good. But, you know, we've already done the believe in Jesus thing. Now, what are the really big issues of life? And how can I really be holy? And they're sitting around and they try to come up with human, human and humanistic mechanisms of righteousness. So 
human-made religion, Paul will say. Self-made piety. And he gives you several examples here. Do you know that human-made religion and self-made piety is devilish? Righteousness isn't. Following God's word is not devilish. Being sincere and having standards for yourself and guiding your own children after you and even giving good counsel and advice to people on, you know, there's some prudence here and here's how the scriptures come to play on your situation. Here's a righteous... That's that's not devilish, obviously. But human-made religion is devilish. And it didn't take long for the church to fall into this, did it? You know, even today, you can read stories. In case you want some of them, you can hit up our church historians periodically for them. Of saints who went and lived on the top of a pillar. Wow. Mm, I wish I could be that righteous. God doesn't call that righteous. He does tell us what the source of that kind of thinking is. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from things that God has created that are legitimate when bounded by his word and the principles of script, but they are perfectly legitimate. And asceticism is not, is not biblical. Wickedness is not biblical, but neither is asceticism. And here people are often led astray, again, by the seductiveness of an overpiety. Even the Old Testament warms, uh, warns us, Solomon himself warns us, you know, be not over-righteous. Is he actually saying you can be over-righteous? No, you can't be over-righteous. But in the sense of creating humanistic standards of righteousness that are aside from God's righteousness and aside from the Scriptures and passing those on, and people are led astray. As I looked for illustrations of this, I ran across an individual I'd never heard of before. His name is Keith Gordon Ham. He was born to conservative Baptist pastor Francis Ham. Early in life, Keith was a zealous evangelist for the gospel in his uh, uh, schools, his public schools. After graduating from Maryville College, number one in his class, he went to the University of North Carolina where he met Howard Wheeler, who became his lover. Wait, this is Keith. And we're talking about Howard. This is in the 1960s. Didn't work out well for him. He chose a different path. Well, the rest of his life is that Keith fell in with Hari Krishnas. He took a big, long, uh, pseudo-Indian-sounding name and started positioning himself to take over the movement altogether. He added all sorts of ascetic practices and sub-Christian elements to his religion and gathered a huge number of followers around himself. But his basic message was corrupt. He blended the God of the Christians, an aberrant God of the Jews, not the true God of the Jews, as the scriptures lay him out, the God of the Muslims, gods of the Hindus, all together and treated them as the same. He said of Christianity, fundamentalism is one of the most dangerous belief systems in the world today. It creates enmity between people of faith. And he continued on with this ascetic movement and wandered further and further from the faith. Corrupted, conscience-seared, deceived, and then deceiving. 
Finally, in this passage, spiritual defection is disloyal, and because of that, we guard the faith. We can falsely treat falling away from the faith as merely leaving an abstract concept, but it's actually leaving God and His plan for our lives. Spiritual defection is insubordinate. Notice that the text says, which God created for receiving. In other words, God has emblazoned purpose statements across certain things of life. You know, in your counseling classes, you have to deal with this. God creates human sexuality, then God puts purpose statements across it, doesn't he? And we're wrong if we reject something and become ascetics. We're also wrong if we reject God's purpose statements and run to human purposes. But in the process of doing so, we're not just rejecting theory, we're rejecting God himself. God himself. So there's insubordination. God gave these commands and he gave these plans and he gave these things to, good, to people to be received with thanksgiving and people are rejecting them. And finally, spiritual defection is ungrateful because where does the passage end? Where does our text end before us? It, it, they're to be received with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God and prayer. God gave these things for good and we twist them to evil. When my son was six months old, we moved to a new home in which all the bedrooms were on the second floor, which means there are lots of transits each day. The stairs were a very steep set of stairs, and they doubled back on themselves, so they ran into a wall halfway down. It became immediately clear to us that uh, Daniel was super active. He was not going to be like his older sister at all. He would not be content to sit there in the bouncy and just, you know, observe life passing him by, always on the move. And to this day, he's always on the move. I heard a loud thunk yesterday. Like, what is going on? And I ran into his room, and he's handstanding up against the wall and trying to do push-ups in handstands up against the wall. And then he'll flip over and thunk when his feet hit the ground. I'm like, always on the move. (laughs) That's the way he is. So what did I do as a parent? Knowing that my little flock was going to wander knowing that there are threats out there, how do I care for him? Well, obviously I can sidle up to him and give him instructions. Here's the instruction that passes directly to you. But there's something else a parent can do, and that is put up fences. Guarding sound doctrine, knowing sound doctrine because of your systematic theology and New Testament theology and Old Testament theology classes, paying attention to the Scripture, walking with the Lord in your own heart so that you can... Defend and guard those hedgerows is protection of the flock. And we put a baby gate, both at the top and the bottom of the stairs. The top, so he can't roll down the stairs. The bottom, so he can't haul himself up the stairs and then fall. And fortunately, I can happily report he has survived to this day. Because spiritual defection ravages the flock, guard, guard the flock by guarding the faith. Father, we're thankful for the testimony of your word. May we be wise watchmen, watchmen like Ezekiel was, alert to error, proclaiming it, warning people when error was on the horizon and approaching them so that people could turn from the error and continue walking with you. We wish to have long and fruitful ministries if Christ endures and if you permit by your providence but we will only do so if we are wise enough to heed a message like today and guard your flock. 
It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.